What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary's a world-class entrepreneur and operator. He's an investor in several multi-billion dollar businesses. He's an author, speaker, and collector. And most recently, he's the creator of the popular NFT project, VFriends. In this conversation, we discuss when Gary first heard about crypto and NFTs, how he plans to grow the IP for VFriends, his biggest financial wins and losses, the future of the digital economy, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly go over our sponsors. First up is Whoop, the 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself through a hard workout or if you should skip the gym and rest. You can wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go before your run anymore. I've tried virtually every wearable on the market today. The Apple Watch, the Fitbit, the Garmin, the Whoop, and others. And Whoop is by far the best. It's super accurate and has the most advanced data, and I literally wear it 24-7. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec, an apparel company that makes some of the most comfortable and stylish clothes in the world today. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy old sweatpants? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with athletes and thousands of others, are wearing these daily, and trust me, they live up to the hype. They are a more stylish alternative to sweatpants, but they are way more comfortable than jeans. Now your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they are definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. All right, let's get into today's episode, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Gary, first off, thank you so much for doing this. It's Monday night, so I appreciate you jumping on to record a podcast with me. Thanks for being there. Happy to do it, my friend. Awesome. So I want to cut straight to the chase. You do a million different things. You're an entrepreneur, an investor, creator, author, speaker, and I'll even throw in the future owner of the New York Jets. But I want to talk more about what I think you're spending a lot of your time on lately, which is the digital side and the NFT space specifically. So let's start with maybe when you first heard about NFTs and crypto in general. South by Southwest 2014, 15, 13, 16. It's all a little bit blurry, but I bought Bitcoin and Ethereum in 1415 because of some jam sessions at South by some really nerdy characters put me on. I didn't really think all that much about it. I remember Ethereum caught my attention because the year earlier I bought Bitcoin. One of my friends was like, well, this one's interesting because it's a platform you can build on top of. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I was, I remember distinctly making the parallels of like Apple versus Android, like open clothes. I was, you know, it was all really interesting stuff. And so I, Kind of was fascinated back then. 17, I saw CryptoKitties. I don't remember thinking it was an NFT. It was really fun and interesting. I remember getting super duper interested in it and wanted to like sit down and like dig in. 
as a collector of stuff, I was like, this is cool. You know, I didn't think blockchain enough yet. So the concept of like actually owning it was foreign in the same way that people make jokes today of right click and save, right? I didn't understand enough in 17, the distinction between a blockchain versus an internet-based reality. I never got around to really digging in. And so that kind of passed, which really uh, too bad. I wonder if I would have gotten into punks and other stuff. Could have been really fun for me. I have the right DNA to have been somebody that would have been into that. And that would have been really cool, but wasn't in the cards. I got sidetracked. I remember vividly actually remember saying like, this weekend I'm going to dig in. Never got to it. And like many things in life, there's emails in my inbox from companies that are the biggest companies in the world right now, where the founders are like, we'd love to pitch you our business and you never take the meeting or you missed it or you forgot it or you had to cancel it. So that's just the game of an entrepreneur. Fred Wilson introduced me to Roham from Top Shot two summers ago. And I was really fascinated by what he was doing with NBA Top Shot. I'd been fully into sports cards at that moment, summer of 2020. Again, it was COVID and I was really operating VaynerX and trying to, to be very frank, stay in business. There was a lot going on for me during that time. We had to let a bunch of people go. We weren't going to get paid by a bunch of clients. A lot of clients terminated their contracts. So I was in wartime general. So even though it was really cool and I had bandwidth to be creative, I couldn't go deep into it. Top Shot launches in the fall. It goes extremely well, as everybody knows. It's very on my radar, but now I'm in full 2021 planning because ironically from COVID March to call it September, October, not only did we weather the storm at VaynerX and VaynerMedia, we started going on the offense because the world was a Fortune 500 marketing was starting to buy into social digital because TV productions were shut down. And so I was in this very interesting part of my career. And then I'm talking to Kevin Rose in like December about comics and I'm telling him he should buy a Jordan rookie and he's telling me I should buy an X-Men one and we're just nerding out being friends and he's like you have a crypto punk and I'm like what's that and hung up went down a little bit of a path on Google and YouTube and Discord and Twitter and basically led right into my January and January was literally January was all crypto punks crypto punks watching the Top Shot era. And somewhere in late January, early February, I kind of had my eureka moment and said, oh my God, this is, this is it. Like this is going to, and I've been very good at like knowing when the masses were coming on to emerging. And so it always been in my peripheral. I kind of knew about it, but this kind of like six month period from summer to Jan, summer 2020 to Jan, Top Shot, doing a little homework, punks, and then doing crazy amounts of homework, hours and hours and hours, I got a sense that we were on the precipice of it being the year and, and it was the year. So I got a bunch of questions, right? I think one of the most obvious things is like people have heard about NFTs for a long period of time. And, and most people, it takes some period of time before they actually get it, before it clicks in their mind. What was that for you? Was it the community? Was it just the, the fact that you could now own something on the internet digitally? Like what clicked in your mind where you said, holy shit, this could be huge. That I believe that people communicate through what they buy more than anything humans do on earth. And that once I understood the complexities, but actually the lack of friction with my anticipation that the tech infrastructure was going to get simpler by the day, that Coinbase had gone public. You know, I think a lot of people are confused that it takes 67 ingredients for something to pop off. 
that sports cards have exploded in the last three years, that the Robin Hood crowd was, and Reddit crowd was grooming, and yet youngsters thinking of themselves as investors, as popular culture, that the world of Roblox and Fortnite and 2K and Madden points, that digital currency, Candy Crush, mobile games where you power up for digital, you know, that that was happening, that social media had hit a crescendo where you're taking photos constantly to communicate to people, oftentimes alluding to things that you spent money on, whether that's food, wine, a trip, the way you travel, clothes. I just had put in enough work in a concentrated period of time where I realized, oh, people are gonna buy these things because they're gonna wanna communicate with their friends. And then once I understand the utility of the contract, if you look at BeFriends, which launches four months later, it's attached to a three-year physical conference. Six months later, I open a restaurant that the membership is at, right? So it was not only the social behavior that I have watched humans do from the history of time, and here's a new outlet at scale, and they're gonna be able to use the social web two mature world to flex their web three assets. Oh, and by the way, there's a secondary non-trivial part, which is this isn't about communication and, and human behavior. This is about utility, contracts, oh, there, there seems to be enough smoke around this. My spidey senses are like, we're getting close. Let me go in deep and this is going to pop off sometime in the next year or two. I feel like it happened six months later, the summer, right? And so that's kind of why. Yeah. So you alluded to it a little bit. You launched VFriends a few months after you really dive into it and do your homework. And you know we're, we're here months later and that's been a massive success for you and the brand. How do you think about that moving forward? Is part of it just like, hey, there's obviously the social flex part, right? The digital part that you mentioned earlier, which is, hey, I own this. I believe in Gary. I want to be involved in whatever he's doing. And then part of it is also the IP and the utility. Yes. So how do you think about that going forward? Is it just provide as much value to these holders now as I possibly can? Yes, comma. Oh my God, this is January when I stood up and said, Eureka. Oh my God. And a lot of friends reached out to me and said, whoa, you're going, I, a lot of people that really know me, inner circle of inner circle said things like, dude, are you okay? Like, I've watched you leave so much money on the table for your reputation over the last decade. Why are you going so hard at this? And my answer was, because I understand it. And it's actually the question to you. To bring as much value as possible to everybody, comma, because you can when you're the issuer of an NFT. My favorite part of NFT creator founder world is when the shit hits the fan. Because when the shit hits the fan, AKA an NFT winter, a correction of the market, which may or may not happen, but I feel like there's too much greed and short-term behavior that I always feel. And I think too many people buy projects today. The reason Beanie Babies crashed was most people bought Beanie Babies with the singular thought in mind that they were gonna flip it. Whereas if you buy a He-Man or Transformer or Michael Jordan collectible, you have an affinity towards that IP and there's value. So like you're going to buy a Disney collectible, but you kind of love Dumbo and you know it might be worth money because it's from 1963 and it's a rare toy. Whereas with Beanie Babies, nobody gave a shit about the characters. They just wanted to flip. I believe most projects right now don't actually have communities. People don't care anything about the art or the characters. They're there because they think they're going to mint it and flip it or buy it and flip it. For me... All my behavior in the last six months has been, how am I going to get people to care about Patient Panda, Empathy Elephant, Motivated Monster? Like, you know, if they, if they don't care about the characters, this will fail. 
what I'm excited about and what the Eureka moment was about was, oh, when the shit hits the fan, I just add more value to the NFT. Right now, people are adding values to NFTs by giving people more NFTs. But if those NFTs in general are softened dramatically, nobody's going to want an extra NFT that's only worth $28. So what are you going to do for that? And so for me, a lot of what I structured with friends from day one strategically, and Joe, I kind of want to give you a little like, here's the exclusive. Here's the exclusive. It's not that big of a deal, but it is for a lot of people listening to this are going to be very smart and bright and ambitious people. From day one, I wanted to strategize access and events with friends because I know when the shit hits the fan, if I just decide I don't like what's going on, even though my contract currently obligates me to three VCons, if I want to just add three because the market's shit and I feel bad for people that spent 30K to buy one and now the current market's eight, well, I can do that. It's my huge preference not to. These things cost $10 million a piece to throw. I don't have a lot of time. I'd like to like do other things. But if I want to, if I want to, because... of my holders bought at the height of the market and I feel like I want to, oh my God, I can. And that's very different. Once I understood that power and I knew myself, which was, I will never compromise my reputation for money. This is built for me. That's why, Joe, I went full steam because I knew that I could protect myself by always providing value to the original holders in perpetuity. So the answer is yes. Now that comes in a lot of forms. If I'm able to successfully, like I think I'm going to, over the next 30 years, build a Pokemon-like collectible ecosystem, well, those characters are going to be a collectible because they're the first alpha, they're the fossil, they're the one, and there will be a collectible value into that. But I'll give you an example. I'll give you another thing that I think about a lot. I think that there's a high chance that I will open a great adventure, Bush Gardens. You know, Disney World is a beast. So, you know, as audacious as I like to roll with my confidence, but even a Disneyland, well... If Walt Disney started today the way I'm starting today, don't you think that the original NFT holders probably would have had lifetime passes to Disneyland and Disney World? Because I can tell you right now, I'm putting it on film and audio. We both look young. And by the time I execute this in 30 years, we won't look this good. So the split video that I make then is going to look funny. But every V1 V Friends holder will have a lifetime pass with that to the amusement park. And that's like 26 years from now value creation. And I will continue to provide value in how I navigate this. Even if I horribly fail in my quest to make people care about these characters, I can turn these tokens into business partnerships, business mentorships, access to me, and a million other things. Gotcha. And is this Bush Gardens Disney World going to be in New York City? <laughs> Probably not because that's very expensive real estate. And I have no <laughs> idea how I'll afford 40 acres on this tiny island that costs a trillion dollars per inch. But I'm looking at New Jersey right now. And boy, even though Great Adventure and Action Park have played there, I'd love to build it in my home state. I love it. How do you think, this leads me to the next point, which is like the macro view, kind of stepping outside of just NFT specifically. And I know you spend probably the majority of your time thinking about NFT specifically and how you can provide value to the people within your project. But if we zoom out and we just look at crypto, do you worry much about how Bitcoin, Ethereum, any of these other assets are doing on a day-to-day basis? Or are you more focused on kind of just NFT landscape and the rest will take care of itself? More number two, though I'm a human being and I'm paying attention. I'm always paying attention. And obviously, the time we filmed this, we've had a real correction drop, whatever you want to call it, bearish 
event since mid-November, early November, I think Bitcoin is on a very special place of its own. And then in NFT land, one of the reasons I bet on NFTs is I believe that these blockchains will bridge to each other. And I think if Ethereum fails, that people will bridge their board apes and be friends and crypto punks to whatever blockchain or chains exist. And I have a feeling they're going to bridge to each other in perpetuity across scaled chains, because why wouldn't you do that? That's probably going to be the likelihood of survival when it's all said and done. And maybe not. And I'm not sure, but I can't worry about things I can't control, Joe. And so my obligation by a country mile is to the people that have put out real money for friends. Now, the original holders, which many have been diamond hands, paid so little. They've won so much. They're kind of off my obligation thing. I feel like they're a child that like, I paid for college. I parented you well, like go be a big boy and big girl. But somebody buying one right now is something I'm thinking about or somebody that bought in November, potentially at the height of the costs of them. I think about them, but no, I don't I don't get fixated on the short term. There is no scenario where the consumer blockchain is not a part of our lives in perpetuity. Yeah. There's no scenario. The the cat's out of the bag. They exist. It's over now. Yeah. I think I probably agree with that for sure. And one of the things that I give you a lot of credit for, both here today and publicly, is like you've been very open and honest about the risk associated with this stuff, right? And I think that that's a good thing because ultimately there is a lot of risk. There's a lot of projects out there that are not providing any value really. And people are buying into them for the exact reasons that you mentioned earlier, that they just want to flip them. They're coming for profit, et cetera. And you're going to have that everywhere, right? I don't think that means that NFTs are worthless. But one one of the questions I got when I tweeted out that we were going to do this was, People were responding and saying, hey, look, Gary has said 98% of these projects are going to go to zero, right? They're, they're, they're worthless. And maybe 2% are really successful and they end up being worth a lot. What is there? Is there like an established criteria in your mind of, hey, these are the things that I look for in a project to make it valuable of those the 2%? Only, yeah. The only thing I look for is the founder. It's the only thing I know how to look at. Meaning there'll be tons of things that are for Mark Zuckerberg, first time founder right? Like the Google guys, first time founders, Sarah Blakely, first time, like, like, and you would have missed those. I would have missed those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In something this volatile, this is so volatile that if you're really, first of all, a, you have to spend money that you can afford to lose. Like you have to, like if you're listening right now, if you're investing in NFTs, it has to be a sum of money that you can afford to have to go to zero people playing with their real life on something this volatile are in a very vulnerable spot. And again, I try to remind people, NFTs are like stuffed animals. Since 1840, when Steiff invented the teddy bear, (laughs) stuffed animals have been a trillion dollar industry since then. But Cabbage Patch Kids, Beanie Babies, Peter the Rabbit at one point, Raggedy Ann, like they Care Bears, they've had their moments, none of which sustain in perpetuity. Like I used to buy and flip Care Bears from the 80s from garage sales. And in 1999, they were like 40, 50, 60, 70, $80 a piece, any Care Bear. And now you can get like the originals for eight bucks supplying to me. What I worry about is that people don't understand the macro and the micro or the nuance. You could buy 17 projects of NFTs. All of those could go from you spending 900 bucks a piece down to 12 bucks. And NFTs can still win as a genre. It's called sports cards. It's called comic books. You could have bought a million dollars worth of comic books in 1979 and not picked X-Men and Spider-Man and Superman and Batman. 
You might have just decided. I'll give you an example. I invested tens of thousands of dollars when I was 18 into Valiant and Image Comics, all of which have gone down to basically zero. But had I spent that same $10,000 on vintage X-Men and Spider-Man and Superman comics, 20 years later, I would have done well. I picked the wrong comics. I lived that actual life. I at 20, actually, this is a really good one. I'm gonna use this a little bit. I picked the wrong comics, but I was right about comics. I saw back in 1999 that nerd culture was gonna become mainstream culture. I was right. I was buying toys and comics. But instead of buying a bunch of Toy Biz, Invisible Women, and Iceman figures for 80, 90, and 100 bucks at shows, I should have been buying Transformer Gen 1 in package. And that's what I think is happening right now with NFT land. People are buying the newest mint, the newest mint, the newest fad, the newest influencer pump. And what you're looking for is the four to five to 15 to 75 really good projects. I believe the only way you even have a prayer is to make a judgment call on the founder. How do you think about time allocation, right? So I'll use myself as an example just for the sake of it, but I feel like I understand the NFT space. I get it. I am a huge believer in the community aspect of it, the digital ownership, kind of everything that goes with the utility and the IP. But I don't own a vast portfolio of NFTs simply because I don't see myself as putting that much time into it, right? I don't have a thousand hours to do all these different things and all this stuff, right? So the way I run my portfolio personally is a few years ago, I heard about this thing called Bitcoin. And I said, wow, this sounds interesting. I did my 500 to a thousand hours of homework. And I literally set that as my reserve asset on my own personal balance sheet. I said, hey, I'm going to put 90 to 95% of my liquid net worth into this. I'm going to set it and forget. It's something that I think is going to be here in 100 years. I think it's going to be incredibly valuable. And I think when the rest of the world hears about it, they're going to want to own Bitcoin also, right? And that's obviously worked out well. But ultimately, what has been beneficial for me is the set it and forget it attitude, right? I'm not a stock picker. I don't want to have to change things every day. I don't way. want to have to go find new assets to buy, all way. this stuff, right? So how do you think about people that look at NFTs and say, I get it, but do I have the time to dig deep in Discord communities? Do I have the time to look at every project? Just walk me through your thoughts. To that person, I say, look, it's so volatile and early now, but you can decide if you want that whether it's punks or apes or V friends or cool cats or doodles or world of women, it's all very early, but there is a subgroup that is slightly ahead of its peers. And if you really, really want to go there, you can set and forget. I'm fairly set and forget. You know, one of the things I've loved about this space is my wallets are public. People can see my behaviors. Now, I'm also buying certain projects because I want to support certain artists. I'm buying yeah. certain projects because I do think it's high risk, high reward. So I would say there's a gambling component to the way I think about it. I'm like, ooh, this project, I'm not even sure I like it, but my brain showed me the path to it being a smash hit. So let me just set it and forget it. And maybe it's 12% likelihood that it's going to happen. But if it does happen, it's so crazy. And if I do eight of those and one hits, it pays for the other seven. And the reason I keep telling people not to buy what I buy is I genuinely believe that 90% of the people are day trading. They're completely day trading, which by the way, most of the world has got freedom. Do what you want with your money. I surely can't set or tell people what to do with their money. I also think that when you day trade, what I'm fascinated by is these day traders are mad at the founders of projects when their product isn't pumping every hour on the hour. And I tell a lot of founders, I'm like, you're listening to your Discord and your Discord is filled with people that are looking for super duper duper short term ROI. And you're building a project that you want to be your project for the rest of your life. 
those interests don't align. I don't think a lot of people are navigating their projects properly right now because they're playing boy that cries wolf because they're doing something every hour on the hour to appease people in the discord who are not their community, who are there actually to do their own short-term pump for their own value. And I think that a lot of founders are going awry by over-listening to people that have their own financial vested interest in mind in a very short period of time versus the founder navigating her or his project in perpetuity. Yeah, I mean, you're an investor, you get this more than anyone, but it's like if a, if a private company Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any of these businesses, Uber, any of these businesses that went public over the last few years or whatever, last decade, had 24-7 communication with their customer base and had a stock price while they were a young company that was basically fluctuating in a similar fashion. It's somewhat unsustainable for a lot of people and founders, which is what I think I believe some people think is a benefit of venture investing, right? Because you have that illiquidity and you don't have the option to sell it if you could. But I would love to talk about your personal portfolio, right? And, and what you're open to sharing, obviously. But outside of, you know, NFTs are certainly a part of that. And But outside of that, and more generally speaking, you own businesses, you're very involved in the NFT space, obviously. But how do you think about personal allocation? I keep a certain number in USD for a rainy day. Genuinely, I had a coconut ball on my head and it changed all my historical behavior. And now I'm a terrible entrepreneur with awful decision-making and it all goes to zero. I need this little batch to sustain a lifestyle that isn't fancy by any stretch of imagination, just normalize that I can take care of my requirements. After that, I just bet on myself outside of the startups that I invested in that went public. And I still believe that I should hold on to the, the stock. Literally, I don't invest in real estate. It doesn't, my big thing is I want to do things that excite me. And even though I believe that real estate and other things are a safer bet, the money isn't the ROI. Like my North Star isn't to maximize my money. My ROI is to maximize my happiness of my process. I'm a purebred entrepreneur. So most of what I do is pretty high risk, high reward. And almost all of the things I really do are just betting on myself building businesses. That's a good point because if someone asked me, you know, what you are, I named 50 things earlier, but first and foremost, I would just call you an entrepreneur, right? I think at your, at your core, that's really what you are. And I think most people would agree that you're not necessarily an investor, you're more of an entrepreneur. And yes. we've seen this trend now, in my opinion, at least, and I'm curious your thoughts, where everyone wants to be an investor, right? There's a bunch of solo capitalists. Everyone wants to go out and invest money in these companies, whether private or public or whatever. How do you think about that shift from like, should more people be focusing on the entrepreneurial aspect of this and building their own personal brands or should, is the investor route the right way to go? I think self-awareness is the right way to go. Like, for example, a lot of my friends make fun of me because I've had such a good investing career and they're like, what are you like 14 hours a day of meetings with clients? What are you doing? And I'm like, I enjoy being an operator. And so I think, you know, I have a lot of friends who've transitioned and jumped up and down to both from operator to investor, from investor to operator, investor, operator, investor, operator, operator, investor, operator. And they've done the whole nine. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of people listening right now should, that should never be either. That should be a number six at a great company. There's, I've talked about this in the past a lot. and I've gotten incredible emails from people who sought out a great company calm. I remember somebody sent me an email. They're like, you changed my life. I was listening to a podcast. I thought I had to be a founder because it was cool. And you said, no, just like be self-aware. I was employee number 13 at calm. This happened to me. Or I was employee number 27 at this epic company. Like 
So I, I think to answer your question, I think it's self-awareness. Like if you genuinely enjoy investing and you think you're good at it and it's enjoyable and it's fulfilling, then, then mazel tov. For me, I'm very proud that at the age of 22, May of 1998 to now January of 2022, 24 years straight, every day, I've been the sole pressure on my back to make payroll of the business all every day. And I successfully built my dad's business. I built one of the largest agencies, independent agencies in the world. I co-started and sold Resi. I co-started and sold Empathy Wines. I've got V Friends, which I'm operating. I have a lot of pride in being an actual operator. I, I always smirk because I've done such a prolific job with social content. And social content is just like a muse bouche. It's not a real meal. When people say funny things like, what does Gary V even do? Meanwhile, I'm doing so many operating things at once. It always makes me laugh, but it means that I've prolifically shown the public speaker or the pontificator of ideas on social, but it's not as obvious that I'm running a 1500 person global agency holding company or that I'm running a 25 person NFT business or the resis and the empathies and the other things I've done that have been derivatives of the VaynerX infrastructure. And that is really where I have my pride. I'm an operator. You named a bunch of things, right? So out of everything that you've done in your career, when it comes to investing in financials, like what was the biggest win? And then on the back of that, we obviously have to name the biggest loss. Well, it took a lot about passing on Uber twice from somebody who I was very close to at the time. Travis was my guy. We hung out all the time. That was- And this, this was like early on, like seed stage? Seed. Like this is like lost 500 million on a $50,000 check. Like wild yeah. stuff. Also, and why did, you, why did you pass on Uber? I overextended myself on my current apartment and didn't have a lot of liquid. And I was very caught off guard. Well, the thing that lets me absolutely put my head on my pillow is that Garrett Camp and Travis started as a side project and neither one of them were running it. I invested fairly early in Uber once it was obvious that Travis was running it. Yeah. But the delta between a 250 valuation and a $5 million valuation was extraordinary. I had another big miss the other day. I was trying to remember... I was excited about it because I could speak to it. God damn it. Biggest win, Facebook was huge. I bought from Mark's parents early on. Twitter was huge. Tumblr was huge. You know, I think I'll see Coinbase play out pretty huge for me because I was in it in 2014. I invested in that. And, um, and these investments, is it the same thesis around the founder or is it just trends that you're seeing? Obviously, Facebook, you were, I think most people listening to this probably understand, like you were very early to the internet, kind of in the 90s yeah. with your dad's business and, yeah. and everything you did there. And then social also, you built an incredible media business. So was it just realizing these trends or is it betting on the founder and the person also? Both. Like I'm at my best when I'm picking jockey and horse, right? Yeah. The jockey is the founder, the horse is the business. I've got that down. Like when that hits right, and that's what I've been looking for in Web3, you know, like, okay. Well, you, my, you, you may be building it yourself. I definitely am. I mean, I think vFriends is... I would assume that at the end of the day, if, you, if it goes where you think it's going to go, you'll consider that eventually the biggest win. Yes, but I'm operating that. I mean, VaynerX is huge. I mean, the biggest win in my life is building my dad's business for it. Yeah. I genuinely believe I'm building, I'm currently actively operating two businesses that will be billion dollar businesses. And I think by all standards of like pop culture, analyzation of like, are you good at business? That will be considered very good at business, but let there be no confusion. Maybe this is a nice way to wrap this up. Giving up the first 12 years of my career, and I mean really giving it up, seven days a week retail, never getting paid a lot of money, building a business that I left at 34 years old with nothing and no ownership of is disproportionately the greatest accomplishment of my career. 
because emotionally it strikes me on every tear duck I have in my body. I fundamentally changed the financial status of my parents and they're the two people that I most adore. I mean, they did everything for me. They immigrated to a new country. My mom is like the ultimate. She built all my emotional graph. My dad worked every hour to make our American dream untrue. It's something that I hope as we end this podcast that people can really, especially kids that are growing up in a family business, can really take in because what I had is all that funny stuff that people laugh at me about of like, you got time, you're young, and all the jokes of like my videos about that, I lived it. I was 22, I knew that I was young, I knew that I'd be young at 34 or whenever I left my dad's business and I didn't have the resentment or the angst of building it for him. And I built a business from a $3.8 million business to a $65 million business, which was game-changing for my family. Yeah. And I left happy, I feel so grateful that I did that because I played out my thesis. I built for them. And I have had enough time to build for myself. And now at 46, I have the taste of both. I've been able to do the noble, selfless, altruistic, son of a parent group that he loves so much move that is like, I'm extremely proud of in my soul. And I've been able to do the accomplished things for myself, my selfish needs, the things I need for me. And it's a great fucking feeling. Yeah, I really respect, and I mean, that was obviously a great answer, but I really respect everything that you, your brother, your whole family is building, right? Because I see a lot of parallels in my life where I get a ton of enjoyment out of doing things with my family, with my brothers, with my parents, right? And it's like, by far and away, the most rewarding part of any of this is the money doesn't come with you, right? So it's uh, yeah, it's obviously it's like, fun to win, but it's funner, it's more fun to do it together. It's the best, like dinners, laughing, war stories, like it's the best. It's the best. Anyway, I'm over time. I got to get to something else. This is I appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, and we'll do it again sometime soon, Gary. Thank you. I hope so.